Well, amen. And good morning. Uh, it is good to see you all. Try that again. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, I appreciate that stroke. I heard you there. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is where uh, we will be uh, this morning. And, uh, and, and I want to echo some of the announcements that Ryan uh, made and maybe a few others. Uh, first off, uh, he made mention of the Wednesday night kids. Uh, I think they were starting up the first Wednesday of February. Uh, we It's been a while uh, since we've had things on Wednesday nights due to to COVID and things like that, but we're ready to get something started back for our kids and Bible study. So Carrie uh, Davis is heading that up. So if you're interested in, in serving in any capacity there uh, or obviously signing your kid up for that, please talk to her. Uh, we are super excited about that. Uh, small groups kicking back off this week. We, we always look forward to that. And I also want to make mention of our reading plans. And I say plans, plural. If you haven't been with us, we, uh, uh, this year we, we are committing to reading through some scripture, reading through the word together. And so we've made available uh, three different reading plans. Uh, you pick which one works best for you. Uh, they are on our website, crosspointchurch.org. They're on the home screen. Just scroll down and you'll see reading plans and it's a blue click here. So click that. And so you say, I haven't started yet. That's fine. I actually, I know of a, a probably five or six people that got started last week. And so uh, the question, you know, when's the best time to start reading the Bible? It is today. Uh, and so if you haven't joined in on that, that's okay. Uh, you can jump in at any moment. There, There's a chronological reading plan, which uh, really just walks through the Bible as, as if, as, as history unfolds, you walk through those events. And so you kind of start in Genesis and you'll jump to Job and it's just kind of how the, the time order of things. And uh, then there's a, a genre reading plan, which we're reading as a staff to where each day is a different genre of scripture and you're reading uh, that genre that day. And so uh, Monday's a genre, Tuesday. And so you're kind of jumping all over the back and forth, but it's 52 weeks. And by the time you get through, you've read through the whole Bible. I said, Justin, I don't know if I'm ready uh, for that. We have one called a five by five by five or five X, five X, five. And it would, anyway, five by five by five. And it's, uh, you're committing five days a week, five five minutes a day to reading through the New Testament, and there are five different ways to dig in deeper. And so we have all those available. You can jump into that. We are excited about those things. They've been very uh, beneficial. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3 is where we're going to be. So this morning, uh, I kind of want to change a direction, if you will, and, and so I need you to follow with me for a little bit, and I hope not to freak you out when I first get started, but uh, changing of a direction. And when I say changing of a direction, I'm not just talking about kind of where we've been the past few Sundays. Um, last week, I mentioned uh, that now, obviously, 2020 was weird for all of us. Uh, it's still, I feel like it's still here, even though we're in 21 at times. Uh, but in the church world, it becomes a little different uh, because every, I say everything, the, the way in which we do church now is forever affected by the COVID pandemic. Uh, I don't know how, you know, obviously they're going to be, uh, hopefully, you know, we get rid of it and things like that. But, and what I mean by that, I hope that some things that existed prior to COVID do not come back in the church life uh, post-COVID. Like, I hope there's some things that we needed to get rid of. Uh, there's some things that we needed to be kind of weeded of. And there's other things that, and one of the biggest things for me was is 
How can I, as a, as a pastor, know the, the health or uh, assess the health of a church whenever the church can't gather on Sunday mornings? Uh, for so long, our, our way of, our metrics of growth and metrics of health has been how many butts are in seats, right? That's kind of one of the ways that we've, main way that most churches kind of say, this is how we know. Can I say butts, Ashley, is that bad? You looked at me like I was in trouble. Uh, uh, but anyway, so that's kind of how we've, we've used those metrics and this is what we, this is how we, uh, uh, gauge how healthy the church is. And the reality is, is that I don't know if that's a healthy way to do that. I don't know if that's the best way for us to do that. And so when I say changing of a direction, I mean, in a, today I want to start a new direction of cross point, if you will. And I don't want to freak you out when I say that. I'm not like about to turn tables over and make these crazy changes, but, but began to direct, you know, change directions, uh, even as a pastor, uh, if you're not familiar with how I became pastor, let me just kind of tell you a little bit about that. If you're a guest with us or anything like that. Uh, in 2015, I was a youth pastor at First Baptist Church of Ellisville. And I'd been there for about five years and uh, I'd gotten married uh, in 2014, about to be celebrating seven years. I don't know how she's put up with me, uh, but the 31st to be seven years since we've been uh, gotten married, uh, and it's been seven years since the best day of my life, and it just keeps getting better, babe. Uh, anyway, sorry. Uh, uh, but anyway, so so we got married, and then uh, you know she came off the mission field. She had been spending, uh, she spent two years in Sri Lanka as a missionary, and then I've been in this youth pastor world. So kind of like our worlds kind of collided, if you will, because. Is like I've been in like perfect church world, like I'm doing the church thing and everybody's, a, you know, I'm in Bible Belt, Mississippi and being a, a youth pastor and she comes off a place that's, you know, not Christian at all. Uh, and so our, our worlds kind of collide a little bit, our worldviews and, and things like that. And, uh, and God used Ashley kind of just to, to, to reveal some things in my own life, in my own heart and ministry uh, that I had just kind of grown lazy towards and taken for granted and things like that. So there began to be this unrest within my own heart about what I was doing. You know, was I, was I just, was ministry just a job for me at that point? Was I really passionate about people coming to know Jesus? Was I really passionate about the gospel going forth? And so, through that, we began to pray for God. You know, we believe that you may be transitioning us or moving our hearts from this place to something else. But the problem is, we knew where we weren't supposed to be. We just knew, we didn't know where we were supposed to go. Uh, and so there was like that moment, like when, the, when Jesus told the disciples to go into the boat and go to the other side, they, they, they didn't know exactly what the other side looked like. They just knew they weren't supposed to be on this shore anymore. And so we kind of felt like that picture, like he pushed us out. And so uh, we had opportunity to go to Texas. Uh, that's where she's from. We had opportunity to go to San Antonio uh, to start a college ministry uh, at UTSA with a church plant. Uh, that we would have loved to be at. It would have been got us closer to our family, uh, but we went and checked it out. We just kind of didn't feel like that where we were supposed to go, but I didn't want to be the bearer of bad news because I didn't want to tell her that we weren't supposed to go to Texas. That's where our family is. And so I remember sitting in our dining room one day, uh, and she just clearly said, hey, I don't think we're supposed to go to Texas. I was like, Whew, glad I don't have to have that conversation. I was the wimp leader. Uh, but anyway, and so anyway, so what we decided to do was, it was like, let's just pause for a moment. Uh, we know we want to be in ministry one day, maybe pastor a church. And so let's, let's go to Cross Point. 
I would love to be a member of Crosspoint. I would love to come every Sunday and just sit under great teaching. I would love just to, just to be there. You know, ministry's tough. Ministry takes a lot out of you. I would love to be at a place that I could just breathe for a moment. That was my plan. And so I got a, so I got a, I got a real job. I said a real job. I got a real job. I was, I was working on houses and, and things like that for a guy who had a lot of rental properties. And after a couple of weeks of being here, actually, here's a crazy story. I should have known. I resigned First Baptist Elsewhere on a Sunday. You know what I did the very next Sunday? I preached at Cross Point. My first Sunday here, I was, I was standing up here. Uh, John was going to be out of town. So any, anyway, I should have known the writing was on the wall at that moment. But anyway, I show up here just to, just to hang out, just to, just to learn under John. A couple weeks after I got here, he was like, hey, we need some help in some areas. Would you worry, you know, think about doing guest services, think about guest services and small groups. I think I wrote a small group curriculum right when I got here. And so, you know, everything was going according to plan, per se. And then I'll never forget the day that John called us in the office and said, hey, I'm getting deployed to Germany. Will you preach for the year? Yeah, that's fine. I'll do that. And then, and so anyway, that starts. And then, you know, the story, John ends up, God calls John out of the pastor, if you will. And then in the year from my first Sunday preaching here, a little after a year, now I'm the pastor of Crosspoint. This is back in 2016. And I'm gonna be completely honest with you. I may have put up a good front. You probably smelt through it. I was a nervous wreck thinking, how in the world can I pastor a church? Do I have what it takes to pastor a church? I love to teach God's word, but is that different than leading a church? How am I supposed to lead a, how am I supposed to lead a church? And uh, to be honest with you, I had, I had little confidence in, in the ability to pastor. I knew that God had called me to this place because legitimately there is no, like there was, there was no no. There was no answer no. It was a this is what you're here for. And I'm not trying to tell you a story just about me. This is confession time for a moment. Here's my confession that in the fall of 2016, when I became your pastor, I had little confidence in myself and not a whole lot of knowledge to get the job done. And for, oh, I'm in my fifth year now, and I still don't know how much I know. Uh, I can say this, that for the past four years, I have feel like I've given it my all as far as preaching the Bible. Some Sundays I've done better than others. And it's usually when I feel like I didn't do a good job that you tell me or somebody tells me that I really needed that sermon. So God is constantly reminding me that it's not about me. My time here has been a time that you've loved me and encouraged me. And so, and, and, uh, some of you, some people left, and that's okay, but there's been a time of a place that you've allowed a young man to find his voice and his fire. I've had the great, awesome opportunity to be able to walk with many of you through dark times. Over the past four years, I've struggled with self-confidence and how to lead or even where to lead or what does it even mean to lead a church? Where am I leading people to? Am I leading people to an event? Am I leading people to a, a small group? Am I leading people? What, what does it mean to lead a group? Of, what am I leading people to? But now I, begin, I, begin, I, I believe that God is starting to make things clear for me in the direction of Crosspoint. And with that being said, I think it's time for a transition. But don't let that scare you. I'm not leaving. Like, don't think that, like, I'm about to tell you I'm leaving. I saw Clay trying to do that in the seat. Like, I'm not, I, I'm not going, I'm not going anywhere. 
I'm not, I, I wanted to set that up as big because I know that's probably cruel, but uh, probably some of you were like, please tell me you're leaving. Now, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving. Uh, but I do think it's time for, for us as a church to begin to ask difficult questions, uh, for us to begin to ask questions that, that get to the core of who we are and why we are. Uh, I think that as a church, I'm speaking from, because I'm not speaking at you, I'm speaking with us. I think as a, as a us, uh, we, we have gotten to a place that lackadaisical, if that's even a word, a normalcy to a natural to a supernatural Christianity, like almost like Christianity, it's a very supernatural thing has just become it is what it is. We come on Sundays and, and that's it. And then so this sermon, it isn't going to be about me pointing fingers. It's about us becoming honest, us becoming honest with where we are as a church. Uh, wh- what's our purpose? Why are we here? Uh, why do we, what, what, what's the church, what's the assembly all about? Now, I'm, we're reading this book uh, as a staff called <clears throat> The Gospel Driven Church, and it's really ate my lunch and beat me up at the, on the playground uh, and sold my lunch money. But uh, I mean, just been, it's been rough on me. It's called The Gospel Driven Church. Uh, and so some of the things I'll talk about is coming from this book. And if you're interested in it, I can send you a link. I think it'd be helpful for, all, for as many of us to read that as possible. But inside this book, the, the author named Jared Wilson makes, he, he says this, that every church is in transition. They're either growing or they're dying. The, every church is always in a transition. That it, Every moment, every day, every time we meet, there's a transition happening. There's, a, there's decisions being made. There, there are directions that we're headed. And it's time for me and you to begin, like I said, to start asking the right questions because every change that I know of starts with a clear assessment, a, a question asking. So if you're, if you're a guest with us here this morning, I'm going to tell you this is not the most encouraging day for you to be here. There's a little bit of house cleaning that we have to do. Uh, but I hope that what you see is a, a pastor who, who loves the gospel. I hope that you see a pastor who is passionate about the gospel and he's also passionate about his church loving the gospel and bringing glory to God in the gospel. And so I hope that's what you see, uh, not a pastor scolding, but a pastor loving. But sometimes God causes an interruption uh, to get, to get our, our attention. And I think that's what he did for the church in 2020. I think in 2020, he said, hold up, wait a minute. Anyway, he said, he said, stop, stop for a moment. Where's your hope at? Where's your trust at? Where's your confidence at? What are you doing? And listen to me. This is a big one for me. Are you still a church if you, if you, if you, if you can't meet together? Are you still going to grow if you can't come? Listen to, or do you still have an identity in a world that we've been living in? And so questions that I began to ask for myself over the past year, and now I'm finally getting it to a point that I'm getting, I feel released to be able to talk, share with you, and begin to ask you. Today is not gonna be super application heavy. It's gonna be very 
pondering questions, the thinking questions. This series that we're gonna jump into called a go- being gospel driven is gonna be progressive as we go. And as we go, we'll unfold some things. But questions I began to ask were questions like this. Why do we do what we do? What's driving our actions? What's the purpose of the assembly on Sunday mornings? Who's the object of our assembly? Who's the object of our affection? Is it the person sitting in the chair? Is it the, is it the guest that's coming in? Or is it a one who's sitting on a throne? Like what is the object of when the church assembles? Who are we assembling for? I begin to ask these questions. Does the Bible tell us what our church is supposed to look like? Or do we have the power to decide what it looks like for ourselves? Can the church be anything that we want it to be? Or has God designed it in his scriptures to say, this is what the church is and this is how the church looks? Does the, does the church, do we, what is it that unites? Why are we assembling? What is it that unites us? What brings us together? And you probably remember when we first started back that we, we talked about a sermon series that, or we did a sermon series that talked about like that longing that we have whenever we were separated, that, that God, like there was this God-given urge and desire to be together. Like where does that come from? Is there, is there something that's inside the believer's heart that just draws us to his people? Is there something there? Is there something greater that unites us? And here's where the question that got even bigger is, is, does that thing that unites us, does it have the power to change us? Does it have the power to to keep changing us? Does it have the power to, to change others? And even deeper than that, does the thing that unites us have the power to be able to drive everything that we do as the church? For the first time since I've been your pastor, I believe that God is actually allowing me to see clearly, and I actually wrote, or more clearly, how and where to lead us as a church. And so I encourage you over the next month or so to be here on Sunday mornings. We're gonna unfold, and I'm not gonna say a new vision for Crosspoint. I'm just gonna say a redefined, a sharpening of focus, uh, that we don't waste our time here, and that God has something for our body uh, to accomplish, and it's not just necessarily building this way, but building this way as well. It's not just about growing numerically, but also growing deeper and deeper. I have a, I have a man that God has convinced me more now than ever that, yes, hey, I want this church to boom, but I want this church to grow deeper and deeper and the knowledge of God. That as a pastor, my biggest heart is that people actually do come to know, love, and enjoy Jesus, and they become a kingdom catalyst, and that is done through greater revelation of him, as more serious to the scriptures, uh, an idea that I want to know more about God. I want to know as much about God as I can. And we as a church systematically begin to provide avenues through that. I'm going to get ahead of myself, but this morning, it starts with an examination. So there's not a lot of applications or, or things like that. There's a series that's built upon these questions. I'm going to ask the question. Our mission here at Crosspoint is to be a place for, for anyone to experience the life-changing power of the gospel. Who's the, so I'm going to ask this question. Who's the anyone there? By anyone experiencing the life-changing power of the gospel, is this just someone who doesn't know the Lord? Or do we want this to be a place that, 
that anybody, as in believer or unbeliever, the, the gospel is still changing my life. I, do we want to, to design this place to just to be for the person who doesn't know Jesus? Or do I want a church that even the gospel, listen to me, and what we'll see through this series, it's, it, the gospel saves the sinner, but it also sanctifies the saint. Like the, there, is no, there is no changing in the power of the gospel. We have a vision to see people come, know and love, joy, love and enjoy Jesus and become a kingdom catalyst. And so are people experiencing the life-changing power of the gospel? Are the people of Cross Point, do, they, do we know and love and enjoy Jesus? Are we becoming a kingdom catalyst or does it just sound good? And if so, how do we even measure that? That's what I'm trying to get to. I'm trying to arrive at a place. How do we measure if these things are true? Is there a metric that we can, that we can examine and go, if, if we were to take inventory of our own lives and as the church as a whole, are there ways that we can measure that to get a heartbeat or uh, to, to see if the check engine light is on? You know, when you get your check engine light and you go to AutoZone, whenever they plug that, or go to Philip, Philip does it. Anyway, but you can plug it in. They tell you this is what, maybe I shouldn't have told everybody that. Go to AutoZone uh, or O'Reilly or somewhere. But anyway, they plug it in. They can tell you what it is. And I think at the, as a church, there's been some check engine lights on. And I'm, I'm thinking that maybe we can plug it into the diagnostic and maybe God will reveal some of those issues and those things that we, we have. Like I said, we can't necessarily keep doing church the way that we've been doing it. And looking at seats to count our success. But we can ask questions like this. Are people being baptized? And not just baptized, but are those being baptized continuing to walk in their faith years down the road? Do we as a church, and this is, like I said, this is questions I'm asking myself. Do we as a church have a clear way of discipling people? What kind of church structure do we have uh, for growth? And what kind of church are we leaving for future generations? Is there a, is there a heartbeat within our people for, for a desire for, for growth and spiritual maturity? How many people who attend on Sunday morning are also participating in community groups or small groups? As leaders, do we have an easy way of, to, of assimilation in that process? As in, is, do we have something, if we really believe that in small groups, this is, this is the way that we come to know, love, and enjoy Christ, and we, we become kingdom catalysts in community, do we have actual avenues for those things? These, I'm telling you, this is how God's been wrecking me over the past year, and now it's coming to you. And then this question that the book asks, if our church shut down tomorrow, would our community care? Not like, would you care, or I care, but would our community care? In 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a group of people who, Paul's identity, his apostleship, his authority have been attacked. And false teachers crept into the church at Corinth and said, don't believe Paul. He doesn't have the authority. He's not an apostle. He's not, he's not a true messenger of God. And so, in 2 Corinthians 
Paul begins to address that, but he, he never really like flexes his muscle. But what he does at the end, in chapter 13, verse 5, this is what he says. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And so Paul was the, the guy who, you know, he, he was smarter than most people. And so here they are accusing him of his, is he in the faith? He's accusing him. Does he have power or authority of an, as an apostle? And Paul goes, no, you test yourself. Uh, and so he, he gives the church a, a challenge to, to test themselves. And so this morning, that's what I want us to do. I want us to, to examine Examine ourselves individually, examine ourselves at the church, and hope to build a case to, to move forward. Make it personal. I want to ask you a question this morning. How would you measure your spiritual health? Like, like you can't say, Justin, that seems so, so subjective. It is, it is. It's very subjective. It's a feeling. And, but right now, today, if you, if you call yourself a child of God, if you're a follower of Jesus, how would you rate, how would you... I feel weird even saying this, but how would you, how would you grade? How would you rate your spiritual maturity at this moment? Like if I did a, if I did a survey, and we and, and I, we may do this actually. I'm, if we did a survey and say, describe your relationship with the Lord, and it would be none or a new believer, growing, mature. Like how would you rate that? You don't, I'm just giving you time to think there. And you ask, here's some questions that you may, we may ask ourselves. When I say the word church or the assembly, what comes to your mind? You as a member of Crosspoint, how do you measure success of a Sunday morning? And this is kind of, keep going deeper into this. If we truly believe that the gospel is life-changing, is it still changing my life now? So how can we examine that? I'm gonna give you five things that I got from this book. These are not original to me. These are actually, uh, I'm pretty thankful for this guy named Jared Wilson because has anybody ever tried to read anything from a guy named Jonathan Edwards? It might as well read Greek and Hebrew, right? I mean, he's a hard guy to read, but what Jared Wilson does is he takes Jonathan Edwards' book of how to discern a, a true spirit, a movement of God within a church body. Uh, and uh, he, Jared Wilson takes those and makes them to our language that we can speak them and understand them. And he calls them the, the five metrics of grace. And so that's weird to try to measure grace. But the, what we're saying is this is how we can see these are seem subjective. These are areas in our life that we can ask these questions. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them because that's what this series is going to be built on. But here's five metrics of grace. Number one, is there a growing esteem for Jesus? Whenever Edwards was writing in his book and Wilson took the, takes this and writes it in here, uh, there are things that, that seem subjective, but they, they can be sensed. There can be within, like, I, that you can sense it. You don't, there's not numbers and there's not like I'm walking in and there's like, say if there was like a, a gauge on my head and like above it and like mom was half full, but if you love Jesus more, yours was fuller than that. I, like that's not what, what he's talking about here, but, but there's a sense. And so in your life and in, and in the life of, of Crosspoint Church, is there a growing esteem for Jesus? Is there a greater, and I want to say love for Jesus that's, that, 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 that is 
experienced and demonstrated when we're together, but also when we're separated? Is there a growing esteem? Because what we understand is that the the gospel, in the gospel, what we see is the glory of Christ and the glory of the Father. And and what Edwards writes and, and Wilson writes is that when the spirit is moving and the church is growing, then Jesus is always the worshipful center of everything. That, that for the church that, and for the, for the assembled together body and the individual Christian in his, his or her everyday life, that when God is moving, so is the exaltation of Jesus in that person's life. That Jesus is raising to a higher honor. When I say by that, I'm not talking about an association with or, or, or a belief in. I'm talking about that as I'm going, that, that Christ is ascending to a higher position in my life than he was yesterday or the day before. That as I'm walking with the Lord and as, I, as the Holy Spirit is working in my life, what he's doing is he's opening our eyes to see more of Christ. And he, he, he takes more authority within our life. Our thoughts of him get higher and higher and more honorable. We begin to incline our affections toward him more and more. And I'm not talking about the cheerleader Jesus or the Jesus that we have in our own image. I'm talking about the Jesus that scripture reveals that he was the son of God who took on flesh, who who lived a life on our behalf, who died upon a cross and he bore the sins of the world that he was placed in a tomb and then three days later he rose again. And and that same Jesus who who ascended and now he sits at the right hand of the father. I'm talking about that Jesus, the Jesus who constantly intercedes on on behalf of his people, the Jesus who is the the radiance and he's the image of the invisible God, the one who holds all things together, not just the Jesus who makes me feel better when I'm down, but Jesus, the risen, ruling, reigning king. That Jesus is more and more exalted and esteemed when God is moving. Man, that's what the Trinity, have you ever seen the unity and the selflessness of the Trinity? When you walk through scriptures, the, the father says, here's my son and whom I'm well pleased. And, and, and the spirit points our eyes to Jesus saying, he is the, he's the king. And then Jesus says, listen to me, I must go so that your helper, the one who's better than me, can come. Listen to me, when God is moving in our hearts, we have a greater exaltation and esteem for Grace, this grace that that we experience, yes, it produces an affection and feelings for Jesus, but that grace applies a faith in Jesus. So we ask the question, is Jesus more important than anything else? And don't just reflexively say, yes. Let's pause and think about that for a moment. The second metric is this. That when God moves and God is moving with his people, when, when Christians are maturing, that there's a discernible spirit of repentance. There's a discernible spirit of repentance that this place is a place where repentance is happening. It's, listen to me, the fundamental problem of every human being is not an unmet felt need, but it's an uncut law, it's the uncut law of God. 
Our primary discontent is not between ourselves and our best lives. It's between our lives and our creator. And we have lots of problems, and we at Crosspoint want to help with those problems, but our greatest problem is sin before a holy God. Wilson says this in his book, Christ is first the satisfier of God's wrath before he is the satisfier of our desires. Hey, listen to me. This place, the Crosspoint Church, I want it to be a safe place, a safe harbor for the sinner. But I want it to be the most dangerous place for sin. I want this place to be a safe harbor. Anybody, anyone, this is a safe place for sinners to be, but I don't want it to be a safe place for sin to be. I want this to be a place where we're militant towards sin, that we say about sin what God says about sin, what it means to confess. We say the same thing about it as God does, and we repent of that sin. That when God moves, that we're not too prideful to, to move forward and kneel down on a concrete floor and say, God, I am, I am unworthy. I'm sinful. I need you to move. I need your power. Do we move and respond to the Lord's lead? When the Spirit convicts our sin, do we readily repent of it? There's a question asked, are we good repenters here? Are we good repenters that we know our sin, yet we understand that God loves us as we are, but we don't want to hold on and manage and try to tame our sin. We want to get rid of it. We want to confess it. That's a mark of a believer is that we are good repenters. If that's even, is that maybe an oxymoron, but we're good repenters that, that we, will, we will cry out in our, in our deficiency. The third metric that Wilson gives is, is a dog devotion to the word of God. That when the, God, when the Holy Spirit is moving, when when Christians are maturing, when God is moving, then, then there will always, a mark for, of a fruitful church will always be the love for God's word. That's why, you know, it's, you may have not even noticed for the past year, I have tried to instinctively begin to, to teach straight through scripture, not bring a lot of Justin's thoughts to it. Just teach the scripture and say, here's what the scripture is saying. I've, I've intentionally over the past year and a half just started saying, hey, this is what the Bible says and this is what it means for us. That's been intentional. And, and we began to write uh, a, a reading plans to go with series. Why? Because we, we want you to be in the word. We have to be in the word. This year we started the, the year with reading plans that we can do that you can join at any time. Do at your own pace. Why? Because this, many researchers say this, but the, the number one catalyst for spiritual maturity and spiritual growth is time spent in God's word. There is no substitute for that. Nothing takes the place of that. That's not legalistic. That is, that is truth. So we ask the question, do, do we love the word and you know, we believe that the scripture is an arid, which means it's, it's, without, it's without, without issues or without uh, wrongs. It is completely right. There's no errors in it. But listen to me, child of God, there's a difference in affirming the inerrancy of scripture 
than trusting in its sufficiency. That each and every day, I believe that this is the word of God. It is sufficient for all my cares and needs in life. It is sufficient for me to grow and do what God has called me to. Do you love the word? Are you growing in love for the word? Number four, I got to move forward. The fourth metric of grace that we find in this book is there's an interest and don't, do not, is already up there? It's already up there. Oh, I'm just kidding. When you see those two words, don't go, oh, here we go. Theology and doctrine. That's for the preacher. That's for so-and-so. Doctrine is boring. Theology, listen to me. First of all, notice that there's an interest, not a theological degree or a doctrinal degree. It's, it's an interest. And say, Justin, why is that important? Don't let that word scare you. When we think of doctor, many of us definitely growing up in, in Jones County, Mississippi, or maybe you're a transplant here, just give us some time and you'll, you'll meet some people. But you, you may think of some old church where, where you went to where it was all doctrine, but it was as dry of a place as it could be. It was the, it was the church of the chosen frozen. Like, there was no life. There was no joy. There was no happiness. It was all about being right no matter who you hurt. Like we, we all have some kind of history with that. And so we, our minds, when we think about deep knowledge and we think about no, wanting to know the character of God and wanting to un, try to understand the Trinity and try to know about justification and sanctification, all these words, we, for some of us, we naturally go, Ugh! And I understand that 1 Corinthians teaches that the knowledge has a tendency to puff us up. But in John chapter four, Jesus tells the woman at the well that, that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And we must resist placing the spirit and truth at odds with one another. I understand that nobody likes a know-it-all. But if we really break down, what does theology mean? Theology means, or theology would be the study or knowledge, and theo would be God there. So when we say the word theology, it's legitimately saying the study of God. As a believer, we must know the definition of God. When we're called to be disciples of Jesus, that's legitimately calling us to be students of his. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Loving God with all of our minds requires a deeper theological study and interest. Listen to me, child of God. We are saved by faith alone. But scripture tells us that that faith isn't a blind faith. It's a reasonable faith. It's a reasonable thing. It's not a rational that the exercise of faith is predicated on information, and that information is the gospel. The strengthening of our faith deepens on that information as well. He, Wilson writes in this book that our growth in the grace of God is connected closely with our pursuit of the knowledge of God's character and his works revealed in his word. The deep things isn't just for the pastor. We all need the deep things of God. Because our faith is connected to our conviction and a sense of assurance. 
I've been very honest with you about the struggles that I walked through the end of last year. And when we walked through the Psalms of Refuge series, I made this statement over and over and over again. There have been times in my faith journey, and I know for years, if not, that I'm the only pagan here, that there's been times in my life that life was so my situation and my circumstance and what was going on in my mind was so not Christian that I began to go, am I even a Christian? Hey, check this out. Did you know that I don't always wake up in the morning feeling like I'm walking on water? I don't wake up every morning thinking that today I've never been so, so close to the Lord. I feel like I'm at the burning bush. No. There's days in my life that I wake up and my mind is so far else, somewhere else, that my little pea of a brain can begin to even doubt things. If God is this, then why is this? And what happens is the circumstances begin to challenge what we believe, and those circumstances begin to speak louder than the, th the beliefs that I have. And we become into this faith crisis, this, this thing of like, if I'm having these doubts, then I can't be a Christian. And so what started with a thought of somebody got sick to I'm not even a Christian anymore. For There's this rabbit hole that happens. And here's what I've come to understand. In those moments when I feel like everything that I thought and believed was you know, jumping away, what I found that held on to me, what I kept going back to, is the things, the deep things that I knew about God's character. That in those moments, whenever I was losing things that I held on to, what I would go back to is that I had things that were holding on to me. And that's the truth that is revealed when we study the deep things of God, that we understand his character, we understand who he is and how he works in relationship with his people, how he's a covenant God and that he doesn't break his covenant. When we begin to study these deep things, man, you would think, that's, oh, I'm not a professor. No, but you are a human, right? I'm a human. <laughs> I need to know who God is on a deep level. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable. What Paul writes here is that transformation begins with the renewal of your. God gives me a different way of thinking and seeing things. And what I'll want to make mention of is that we can't, as Crosspoint, as, as this church, because this is the church that we're a part of, we can't pin the heart and the head against one another. Because what will happen is, is I, don't, I don't want to be a church that is all knowledge without a heart, but I also don't want to be a church that is all feeling with no depth. Because the grace of God empowers the church by inflaming our desires toward greater interest in theology and doctrine. Number five, fifth metric is an evident love for God and neighbor. What we see revealed in scriptures that truth, fruitfulness is evidenced chiefly in obedience to the commands of God. In Luke chapter 10, verse 27, 
the greatest commandment, you shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So ask that question. Do we have a, a deep love for God and our neighbor? I want, I want to have that. I want this church to be a place that is marked by that. And so the question is, could it be that we as the church have moved past the only thing that can change us? Have we taken our eyes off of what's most important? As a staff, are we facilitating and nurturing places for these five things to happen in the life of the people at Cross Point? That's what I'm trying to get to. Here's the, the, where I start talking about direction. Are, there, are we facilitating that? And what I've come to understand is that it is the gospel, and this sounds super simple, and I, I hope it does. It is, it is the gospel alone that can produce those things. It is the gospel of grace, and that is what my heart is, is that we begin to uncover the beauty and the depth of the gospel. I've heard it like this, that the gospel is so simple that a child can understand it, but it is so deep that the brilliant, brilliant, most brilliant minds never completely uncover the beauties and the layers of it. And we never get a monopoly on the gospel. And I believe it is the gospel that, that gives us a higher esteem for Jesus. It is the gospel who gives us a spirit of repentance. It is the gospel that directs our hearts to the word. It is the gospel who directs our hearts to love God and love others. It's a term that you're going to be hearing this gospel-driven. Look, look at the glory of the gospel that we see in 2 Corinthians 3. I'm going to read this fast, so we just check this out. I'm going to read actually the whole chapter, but stay with me. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you and or from you? You yourselves are a letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you're a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on the tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. It gives life. Listen to me. Watch how beautiful his, his, his imagery, his, his, his words that he writes to talk about this new covenant, this spirit that gives life. Verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, speaking of the law, uh, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end, would not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed is the case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For, if we, for what was being brought to an end came, sorry, what was brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who will put a veil over his face so that the Israelites may not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened for 
To this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same, evil, same veil uh, remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But check out, look at this, verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the spirit, the spirit that he talks about all the way back in verse 8, the spirit of glory. He says, the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. And we all, check this out, with unveiled face, because we, we've turned to Jesus and he's taken a veil. He's removed the veil now that we can see the glory of God in the gospel of grace of Christ Jesus. When we see that, well, check this out, we're beholding the glory of the Lord that as, as, the, as God removes the veil from our face and we begin to see the glory of the Lord, we begin to see we're beholding it, not just behaving in a certain way, but we're beholding the glory glory of grace in the gospel, look what happens. Beholding, you're being transformed into the image of Jesus. An image, and the same image from one degree to another, for this comes to the Lord who is the Spirit. What do we need from transformation? We need to behold Jesus. We need to see Jesus. And where is Jesus most clearly identified? In his gospel of grace. And in the gospel of grace, he is seen most glorious. And God the Father is seen most glorious. The gospel is what we need, not just sinners, but saints. I said this already, the gospel saves sinners and it sanctifies saints. It is the gospel that identifies and instructs everything that we do. If you don't believe me, you say, Justin, that seems so vague. Well, I, I challenge you to keep coming until we get done with this series. Let's put some flesh on these ideas of how the gospel actually drives everything we do. And if we're not operating by that, then we are not operating biblically. The gospel is what grows us. 2 Corinthians 15, this is the, the text for next week, verses one through four. Now I would remind you, brothers, you can just turn a couple pages back. I would remind you, brothers, there it is. There, there's the, Paul reminding the church at Corinth of the gospel tells us something. You wanna know what it is? We are people who forget. If Paul would just all of a sudden stop in his letter, I want to remind you of the gospel. He tells us we're prone to forget, brothers, of the gospel, I preach to you, which you receive. Look at the versatility and the comprehensiveness of the gospel. You received it. That's past tense. You're currently standing in it, and there's a past or a present future tense, which is when you are being saved, if you, if you hold fast to what? The word that I preached to you. What was the word that he preached to him? The gospel. So Paul says, if you'll hold on to the gospel, that gospel will not only justify you, it will sanctify you, and eventually it will get you home. It is a holding fast to the gospel. Verse three says this, for I deliver to you as a first importance. First importance, he wasn't saying the, the thing that was freshest on my mind. He said, no, this is the thing that carries the first importance. Like this is the most important thing. This is the, the number one thing. This is, if there's only one thing it can be, it is this. 
If you have to choose between the gospel and this and this, you choose the gospel. That's what he's saying. It is of the first importance. Child of God, church, I'm convinced that it is the gospel that shapes and identifies our worship services. That is the gospel that shapes and identifies our community. The gospel doesn't just tell us we need community, it actually gives us a love for community. Then we talk about small groups, it won't be pulling of teeth, but it'll actually be that the gospel has saved me to a people and I wanna be with a people. If we get gospel centered, we start thinking about other things as, as a hindrance to my schedule too. No, these, this is where I wanna be. This is the people that I wanna be with. The gospel changes and directs those things. The gospel is what empowers us and instructs us, instructs our love for God and neighbor. Say, Justin, are you about to change the whole church? No, we're not doing that at all. There's gonna be some repurposing and reshaping. And I may not be the most dynamic leader or the, with the coolest ideas or the most clever sayings, but I, I can say this, I sure do love the Lord and his gospel. And I think I can help you as well. That's, that's as, as clever as I can come up with. I think I can help all of us grow in love for Jesus. When the gospel is preached and taught and celebrated, listen to me, sinners will be forgiven, saints will be sanctified. When the gospel is preached, taught, and celebrated, it shows us the glory of God. We see Jesus. When the gospel is preached, taught, and celebrated, it will fuel our worship like we've never worshiped before. When the gospel is preached, taught, and celebrated, it will unite us to community. The community will become a desire more than it is a duty. Whenever the gospel is preached, taught, and celebrated, it will fuel our mission. Being a, being a, a witness for Christ is, is what we'll see. It's everyday life whenever the gospel is driving the ship. All these things that we add to just become a natural product of trusting and believing the gospel over and over and over again. Hey, this morning, have you trusted in the gospel? Have you believed in and on the name of the Lord Jesus? Because here is the great news. And we read in the Second Corinthians 3 passage. There was once a guy named Moses. You may not be familiar with, with scripture, but there was a guy named Moses. Moses was a Jew that grew up in Egypt. And then before long, God started giving him a discontent in his heart about, about what about his people was under uh, uh, oppression. And he was a, he was a hothead, and so he ended up actually killing a, an Egyptian, and he, he ran away, and then when he was on the backside of a desert, God called this guy named Moses, and he, God talked to him in a burning bush, and, and so God was talking to Moses with this burning bush, and he says, I want you to go set my people free. I want you to go back to Egypt, and through you, I'm going to set my people free, and so, so Moses went and did that. He was kind of stubborn. He had a bunch of excuses like me and you would many times, but he goes to him and he, 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 he says, hey, let my people go. And eventually, fast forward, Pharaoh lets God's people go. They get across the Red Sea. They're in their kind of wandering wilderness. And it was in this time that, that God gave Moses what we call the, the Ten Commandments. So when we read 2 Corinthians 3, talking about the, the condemnation that was carved in stone, and it was a glorious thing. So, so, so Moses, uh, God wrote this on tablets, and this is what they he presented to the people and they, he was, they couldn't look on his face and he was so, it was so glorious. But the problem with that is that Paul calls it a letter of condemnation. 
You know why? Because that, that law could do nothing to save us. That law could do nothing to make our situation any better. Nothing. Matter of fact, that, that law actually just exasperated our sinful tendencies. We see the law and our flesh goes, and we rise up and rebel against it even more. But here's the good news, is that even, listen to me, even before God had called Moses, God had promised a savior. That one day there'd be a guy whose name was Jesus, the Christ, the son of God, that he would come. And whenever he lived in, on this earth, he lived a perfect life. The one that the law demanded, but the law that condemned us, he fulfilled. All the way to the point of death, he, he died on a cross for the, for the sins of many, scripture says. The sins of all. And now Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians. The spirit, the law of the spirit is way more glorious than that one we see with Moses. Why? Because God did something for you and I that we could not do for ourselves. He purchased our forgiveness. Now Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This morning, will you trust in that glorious grace? Will you trust in that glorious God? Will you, will you place your faith in that glorious Savior who is the Christ? Nothing you can do to improve, can improve your situation. Only trusting in Jesus. It is finished. It is done. Today, I'm not going to tell you five things that you need to do. I'm going to tell you one thing that is done, and that is salvation is finished. Will you trust in him this morning? Every, bow, every head bowed, every eye closed this morning. Will you trust in Jesus? Will you trust in the Lord? Will you place your faith in him? is freely given. Will you trust in him? There's freedom there. Will you place your faith in him? The Bible says to repent and believe. Repent, repentance and faith are not two opposite things. They're, they go hand in hand that we, in one sense, in the same action, I am turning from my own trust in myself and I'm trusting in what Jesus has done and what scripture says. Will you, will you call upon Jesus this morning? Child of God, I would ask you this morning, how's your spiritual journey going? How's it going? Are you willing to, to confess, to repent, of apathy or laziness or whatever you want to call it and ask God to give you a heart that so desires him, that longs for his word, that, that longs for Jesus, to know him in his word, to love him and love our neighbors. Father, we love you.
We thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your gospel. The gospel that not only saves, but it sanctifies. The gospel that is completely comprehensive for the life of the believer. God, if there's anyone in here this morning who doesn't know you, God, I pray that you will draw them to yourself, that you'll give them faith to obey and follow. God, as a church, God, I pray that we repent of our trusting in ourselves. God, we repent of our apathy. God, that we'll get serious about knowing you more and more and sharing that knowledge of you. So in Christ's name we pray, amen.